0: Hello, and welcome to the Climate Change Weekly Podcast. It's the 1st of December, 2019. This week, the European Parliament has declared a global climate and environmental emergency, as it urged all EU countries to commit to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. The COP25 conference will be held in Madrid in the coming week. Greta was still mid-ocean for the climate strike on Friday, as she sails back to Europe on La Vagabond. forest fires continue to sweep Australia, and for our topic of the week... We look at what's gone wrong at the EPA. Now, before we get started, I just want to say thanks to Lucy, Craig, Nicole and Colin for taking the time to send emails expressing thanks and encouragement. I really appreciate that and I'd love to hear from more of you. So starting with the EU, a resolution to declare a climate and environmental emergency was passed by members of the European Parliament by a comfortable majority with 429 votes in favour and 225 against. The French Liberal MEP who drafted the climate emergency resolution said, the fact that Europe is the first continent to declare climate and environmental emergency just before COP25, when the new commission takes office, and three weeks after Donald Trump confirmed the United States' withdrawal from the Paris Agreement, is a strong message sent to citizens and the rest of the world. In a separate vote, MEPs backed a resolution stating that current EU climate targets were not in line with the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, which calls for keeping global heating well below 2 degrees C above pre industrial levels, but aiming to cap temperature rises at 1.5 degrees C. MEPs backed a tougher target of cutting greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030, an improvement on the current 40% target. If we look at climate tracker.org, which is the site where you can see how your country is tracking against the Paris Agreement, we see that the EU has a rating of insufficient. Commitments with this rating are not consistent with holding warming below 2 degrees, let alone with the Paris Agreement's stronger 1.5 degrees limit. If all government targets were in this range, warming would reach over 2 degrees C and up to 3 degrees C. Now, I'd urge everyone to go and have a look at Climate Action Tracker. Just take a look at the homepage where the map of the world shows that only Morocco is on course to meet the Paris Agreement, and the thermometer shows that current policies will lead to a warming of 3.2 degrees C. We've had parliaments around the world declaring climate emergencies, but so far they've translated into little action. Let's have a listen to what the incoming EU president has to say with regard to the EU's response to the climate emergency. If there's one area the world needs our leadership, it is on protecting our climate. This is an, an existential issue for Europe. And for the world. So let's hope that this marks the resumption of real leadership on climate change from Europe. Next, it was announced on the 1st of November that Madrid will host the 25th United Nations Climate Change Summit, COP25, from December the 2nd to the 13th after Chile's resignation. The Spanish capital had only four weeks to prepare for the conference. The massive anti-government protests and social unrest in Chile led the President to renounce hosting the COP25 on the 30th of October. One day after the announcement, Spanish Acting Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez offered to assume the organisation of the summit by the scheduled dates. Now, as you will recall, one of the primary reasons Greta Thunberg sailed to the US was to attend the conference, and this last-minute change left her on the wrong side of the Atlantic. Fortunately for her... Sailing vessel La Vagabond stepped up to give her a ride to the Portuguese coast. Now, I'm going to digress a little here. Uh, Those that have been listening to the podcast for a while will know that I'm keen on ocean sailing myself. And as such, I followed the SLV channel, Sailing Vessel La Vagabond, for many years. And just to briefly recap their story, uh, a young Australian guy called Riley, who I'm from, this is from memory, so might not be exactly accurate, but how I remember it is that he had an accident, injured his back. He used to work on the oil rigs in South Australia, and after his convalescence, he went to Europe and bought himself an ex-charter yacht, a Beneteau 434, for I think around about €65,000. He had no sailing experience, and he set out and he met Elena, his partner along the way, I think in Greece. And then between them, they spent the next couple of years or so making their way down towards New Zealand, where they eventually left the original Le Vagabond boat and upgraded to a very swanky new Outremer catamaran. Now, it was at this point that I actually stopped following the channel, because one of the things I found very inspiring about it was that it showed that anybody with not that much money and no real sailing experience could set off and have a massive adventure sailing around the world. And I found that really inspiring. Along the way, though, they built up a massive following on YouTube, a huge Patreon income, then a really a sponsorship deal with a catamaran manufacturer to get a million-dollar-plus new catamaran. And at that point, I felt that it really was something that wasn't really in the reach of most people. And I haven't actually been following it for the last couple of years since that happened. Now, if you are interested in those kind of sailing adventures... I would recommend checking out Sailing Vessel Florence YouTube channel, which follows the circumnavigation of a young British couple. After we followed the channel for a number of years, we were lucky enough to cross paths with them in New Caledonia last year, and they were genuinely lovely people. Anyway, to pick up the story, according to the most recent update on Twitter, Le Vagabond was still several hundred nautical miles off the coast of Portugal on the day of the climate strike which is reported to have attracted hundreds of thousands of protesters, so Greta may not quite make it for the start of the conference, but she shouldn't be very far behind. Australia has suffered a devastating early bushfire season, with fires across several states burning through hundreds of thousands of hectares and destroying hundreds of properties with the loss of six lives. A massive brush fire is now within 15 kilometres of downtown Sydney. The city under a catastrophic fire warning for the first time in its history. Fires are burning across the country, scorching land, burning animals. New South Wales has been the most severely hit, with more than 1.65 million hectares raised to the ground. At one point, firefighters were battling a fire front about 6,000 kilometres long, which is more than the entire width of Australia. Australia's long spell of hot and dry weather is set to continue into the summer, with the Bureau of Meteorology warning communities should prepare for more severe fire danger. The summer outlook shows an 80% chance of above average day and nighttime temperatures for most of the country, and an above average chance of drier than average conditions for large parts of eastern Australia. The Bureau said spring, which brought catastrophic fire danger to the east coast, was likely to have been one of the driest on record. Summer's looking particularly dry, with the odds of drier-than-average conditions right down the east coast, including Tasmania, the Bureau said. A positive Indian Ocean dipole, which moves weather systems that would typically bring rain away from Australia, and a negative southern angular mode, are driving the continued hot and dry conditions. Now, Australia has always had devastating bushfires. Just looking at New South Wales, over the past 50 years, there have been just two calendar years in which more of the state has burned than in this year, and they were 1974 and 1984, with 1974 being the worst. Now, the University of Wollongong says that the 1974 fires burned through largely remote country, mostly in the state's far west, devouring green, non-woody herbaceous plants. The conditions were created by above-average rainfall, which produced ample fuel in outback grasslands. By contrast, the fires in the east of the state this year have been fuelled by a lack of rain. The extent of the fires is in significant part driven by the amount of dry fuel available, and the amount of dry fuel is linked to the record-breaking drought. Rainfall between January and August 2019 was the lowest on record in some areas, including the northern tablelands of New South Wales and Queensland's southern downs. Parts of both states experienced record low soil moisture. So what is the Australian government's response? The Prime Minister Scott Morrison argues there is no direct link between Australia's greenhouse gas emissions and the severity of the fires raging in the continent, even suggesting Australia could increase its emissions without making the current fire season worse. My take is that as climate change accelerates, it's going to become increasingly difficult to explain why a once-in-50-year fire season is happening every other year, which I suspect will start to be the norm in the coming decade. I know that I have a lot of listeners in Australia and I'm sure that many of you are ashamed of your government's position on climate change. Now turning to this week's topic of the week, we're going to talk about what's gone wrong at the EPA, which is the US Environmental Protection Agency. According to its website, the mission of the EPA is to protect human health and the environment. EPA works to ensure that Americans have clean air, land and water. National efforts to reduce environmental risks are based on best available scientific information. Federal laws protecting human health and the environment are administered and enforced fairly, effectively, and as Congress intended. Environmental stewardship is integral to U.S. policies concerning natural resources, human health, economic growth, energy, transportation, agriculture, industry, and international trade. And these factors are similarly considered in establishing environmental policy All parts of society, communities, individuals, businesses and state, local and tribal governments have access to accurate information sufficient to effectively participate in managing human health and environmental risks. Contaminated land and toxic sites are cleaned up by potentially responsible parties and revitalised and chemicals in the marketplace are reviewed for safety. They go on to say that to accomplish this mission we develop and enforce regulations. When Congress writes an environmental law... We implement it by writing regulations. Often we set national standards that states and tribes enforce through their own regulations. If they fail to meet the national standards, we can help them. We also enforce our regulations and help companies understand the requirements. Now, In September, President Trump made good on his long-standing threat to formally revoke a waiver that had been granted to California for decades. The waiver lets the state set its own emission standards for vehicles. Add in the 13 other states that follow California's regulations and you have a car-buying audience so large that global automakers have no choice but to comply with these rules rather than the looser federal regulations. The move was almost immediately met with a lawsuit by California and 22 other states. Curiously, that's nine more than actually follow the stricter policies. The Trump administration has pressured car makers to take its side in California's lawsuit over the move. When General Motors, Fiat Chrysler and Toyota made the surprise decision to comply, Trump tweeted, California has treated the auto industry very poorly for many years, harming workers and consumers. We are fixing this problem. The attack isn't just on auto standards. On Sunday, Trump tweeted a threat to cut U.S. aid for fighting California wildfires, reiterating his previous false claim that they are due to the state failing to clean its forest floor. Trump's Justice Department sued the state a week earlier, arguing that California exceeded its authority. In my opinion, Toyota is the new Nokia. They've been king of the car industry, but despite pioneering hybrids, they have so far failed to embrace battery electric vehicles. So far, they've sustained little damage from the stance, as electric cars have taken very little market share from them. But that's about to change. The cost of battery electric vehicles is falling rapidly. The total cost of ownership already matches a Toyota Camry and within the next two or three years they will be considerably cheaper. While gas and diesel cars are likely to become more expensive I suspect Toyota will see its market collapse. Its response a RAV hybrid to be launched in 2021 and more pointless development of hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Interestingly Toyota was an early investor in Tesla and used their powertrain to make the RAV EV. This was a so-called compliance car, only sold in California. In 2012, the Californian Air Resource Board mandated that automakers that sell at least 60,000 vehicles a year in the state, Chrysler, Ford, General Motors, Honda, Nissan, and Toyota, must sell zero-emission vehicles using the formula of 0.79% of their total California sales. The next year, the number is bumped up to 3%. Under regulation, failure to meet the numbers would result in losing the ability to sell any vehicle in California. Thus, the Chevrolet Spark EV, Ford Focus EV, Fiat 500E, Honda Fit EV and the Toyota RAV4 EV were born. They are called compliance cars because they are designed and engineered specifically to comply with the board requirements and allow automakers to continue selling cars in the state. So why is the EPA fighting to reduce emission standards when they're supposed to protect the environment. In large part, this can be explained by the leadership of Andrew Wheeler, who is the 15th Administrator of the EPA. He served as the Deputy Administrator from April to July of 2018 and was Trump's pick to take the top job. From 2009 until 2017, Wheeler was a lobbyist, in a law firm's energy and natural resources practice. Since 2009, he represented the coal producer Murray Energy, privately owned by Robert E. Murray, a supporter of President Trump. Murray Energy was Wheeler's best-paying client, paying more than $300,000 during the period 2009 to 2017. Wheeler lobbied against Obama administration climate regulations, for power plants and also sought to persuade the Energy Department to subsidise coal plants. Wheeler set up a meeting between Murray and Energy Secretary Rick Perry in March 2017. At the meeting, Murray advocated for the rollback of environmental regulations and for protections for the coal industry. So clearly, he was a brilliant pick for the head of the EPA. Referring back to a previous podcast where we talked about the saga of lead in gasoline and I said that people had to choose whether they wanted to be a greedy executive with their snout in the trough, or a Thomas Midgley like environment destroyer, or a hero like Claire Patterson. Well, it's pretty clear which side of the fence Wheeler sits. That's all for this week. Please do star or follow the podcast and share with others. And I'll see you again next time with another episode of Climate Change Weekly.